Our first speaker studies the use of AI technologies in healthcare, particularly the impact on clinical decision-making and care delivery. He's a postdoctoral research fellow at the Australian Institute of Health Innovation at Macquarie Uni. Please give a big warm welcome to Dr. David Lyle. Thank you. Um, so quick follow-on question. If the people have used ChatGPT, how many would be comfortable using that to document patient notes? It's a serious question. Uh, um, so, and, and that's actually a very good, good lead-in to, to sort of my... <laughs> Possibly to save us from ourselves. So this is probably a good to lead into to what I want to talk about today because it's there's the technology and then there's kind of like how we use it. Um, so, so by way of a quick introduction, I I never know how to describe what I do. My, my field is health informatics. Um, I sort of describe myself as an, an academic snow. I'm not really of any sort of pure sort of academic lineage. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested in how people interact with and use technology. Um, so let, let's start with this. This is um, Arthur C. Clarke's third law. He's a science fiction writer that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And there, there is a lot of discussion around AI that does kind of make it sound rather magical. And a lot of, a lot of what we're talking about is you know, sort of questions like we, we heard about in the, in the first session, where it's kind of like the division of tasks and decisions, except rather than being sort of in primary care and, and who were the clinicians who are, who are making those decisions and, 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 and performing those tasks, it's a division of tasks between human and machine. And, and there is a lot of enthusiasm that, that, about AI and there's a lot of promises that have been made about what it might be able to do at some point in the future. And these are sort of, some, the, the difficulty seems to be in real world implementation. Um, where something kind of seems like it's technically possible, but it, it kind of proves difficult to do, um, you know, when we want to deliver it in, in, in real life. Um, so the example in, in healthcare was we should stop training radiologists now. Um, because in five years, AI will be vastly better. Um, so that was nearly eight years ago now. Um, and, and I suppose the point I want to put here is um, that we're sort of talking about expertise. Um, so there's uh, that the, the ability for an AI to do an expert task doesn't make it an expert. Um, so, so with the, the, the clinical tasks that, that you're sort of performing, an AI that can do those is not going to have the expertise that you have. So I suppose in this presentation, what I want to do is, is to kind of try and demystify this. And um, we'll start with, you know, talk about what, what AI is, um, you know, what the potential might be in healthcare. And we'll look at some, the, you know, the current state of the art for AI that is usable in clinical practice right now, and then talk about some of the risks. Um, 
so very simply, when, when we're talking about AI, sort of from the mid-2010s, 2020s, what we're talking about is machine learning. Um, you'll also hear the term used interchangeably with deep learning. At a very high level, the difference between the two is, um, from the diagram up here, machine learning has a single layer, deep learning has multiple layers. There's going to be some more sort of nuances involved in, in how they're trained and, and produced. But that's sort of like the fundamental sort of difference between the two. And, and as the name kind of suggests, is it's learning. Um, and, and an AI is trained by, I'm going, to use, I'm going to use AI interchangeably with machine learning. But when I say AI, I mean machine learning. Um, and, and it learns from examples. So you give it labeled examples. If you want to train an AI to detect um, cancers in, in screening mammograms is you give it lots of examples. You give it lots of examples of normal mammograms and you say these are normal and you give it a whole lot that have suspicious findings and you say these, these ones are suspicious for cancer. And the more data you give it, the more data you train it with, the better and the more accurate it becomes. And then, and then the idea is that you can then give it a previously unseen mammogram and they can sort of tell you whether it's normal or, or there's something suspicious. So, um, so I talked a bit about that, that, um, that AI can be sort of trained to perform expert tasks. So let's kind of look at the, what the benefits of AI might be in healthcare. Um, so the, the one, and this is some research that came out of the Institute, is looking at the healthcare that's delivered, um, that, yeah, 60% is in line with guidelines, 30% is, is sort of low value, um, and 10% can be harmful. And so, look, it, it, healthcare is complex, um, and, and there's always going to be room for, for, for you know, in, improvement in everything. And, um, and, and there are a lot of people who are saying that AI can be that improvement. Um, and, and in terms of what I was talking about, so my interest is in kind of how we use technologies. And, and this is going to be in relation to the decisions and the tasks that are involved in the provision of healthcare. So, you know, things like doing sort of risk assessments or um, the headline grabbing ones are all about diagnosis. But, but there are lots of other sort of applications as well. Um, okay, so let's have a look at the current state of the art. So AI is being used in clinical practice right now. Because um, we're academics, we, I don't know if I'd say we like doing systematic reviews, but we do lots of them. So we did, we did a systematic review and we looked at medical devices. And medical devices are interesting because any AI that is intended for use in a diagnosis, treatment, prevention, or management of disease is, by definition, a medical device. In Australia, they're subject to regulation by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. Um, in the US, it's the Food and Drug Administration. We used um, FDA data because they have good publicly available data that we could trawl through. Um, and so we looked for, through them for medical devices that use machine learning or AI. And in, in this analysis, we sort of found a number of different examples, but we sort of, overall, they sort of fell into three kind of groups. 
And, and I'll sort of talk about those and, and show you some sort of examples. Um, the first one is, and, and this is the sort of the dream that has been um, you know, for AI that, that we sort of hear, hear in the media and, and what's been written is about you know, an autonomous AI, something that is able to act in place of a, a person. So this one is, it's Luminetics Core, as uh, previously called IDXDR, and this detects diabetic retinopathy from fundus imaging. And the, the interesting one about this is, despite the, the paper having the word diagnosis in it, it's not actually a diagnostic device. It's actually intended for use in primary care. The aim, the, the aim of it is, um, and this was sort of approved in, in the United States first, where there are a lot of diabetics who are underscreened for retinopathy. And the aim of this device is to try and increase access to, to screening because it could put, be put into a GP clinic. And the GP can then, on the basis of this thing, they can trust the result. They, they, they just get a result that says positive or negative. If it's negative, the person would be screened again in 12 months. If it's positive, the, um, they, that could be the basis for referral for that person for diagnosis and treatment by a specialist. The next one, the next group are sort of AIs that provide information. It's not an answer to the, it's not performing the clinical task or it's not answering the clinical question, but it's providing information that might, might help in, in the assessment of it. So this, this one is, is uh, called IcoBrain. And, it's, um, and, and the AI is it's segmenting the segmentable brain structures and it's providing a quantification of it. And, and this would be helpful, for, for example, for, for assessing atrophy and, and perhaps an evaluation of patients for dementia. The third one is assistive and on the right side of the slide, we have, or on the left, um, we have sort of a Venn diagram. I sort of, um, I did point out in the previous ones, but this is, we, we call this kind of these assistive AIs, and it's where what the clinician do, does and what the AI does overlap, and quite substantially. So this one, it's called, and the name is Profound AI, um, by, by ICAD, um, and it detects, uh, yeah, it detects suspicious features in, in screening mammograms. But the, yeah, uh, but the clinician, um, and, and these assistive ones, they, they are characterized by these kind of indicated caveats. And, and these are the ones where, you know, you know this does not replace clinical judgment, um, that this, this is not a diagnosis or whatever, that, these are the indications that place all the responsibility for the decision onto the clinician. And, and we did see nearly half of the medical devices we analysed actually fell into this category where it's, it's definitely not replacing anybody because it, it requires a human clinician to essentially back it up, right, to sort of identify when it's wrong and prevent it from making mistakes. And, and the, the example that we've got, the other example we've got is um, full self-driving at the moment, where it's called full self-driving, but the driver has to be available to prevent the car from causing an accident, should that arise. 
And so um, I, I suppose already we sort of set up with that, that assistive one, that there's risks that are introduced with, with the use of AI in healthcare. Um, and from kind of the description of how AI sort of works, it's very data sensitive. It requires a lot of data to train it, and it's sensitive to biases in the data. Um, my, my colleague tells a story of um, someone who created uh, an AI to differentiate photographs of wolves from huskies. Um, and it turned out that it, it learned the wrong lesson. What it, what it learned was, was that all the wolves were photographed in snow and the huskies weren't. <laughs> and, and so, and you can imagine in healthcare, if you've got um, something that is looking at skin moles, that you need to kind of train it on a thing that represents all the possible skin types. If it's only trained on light-coloured skin, it may only work well on light-coloured skin. So we've got to kind of test it across every, every potential um, population that it's going to be used on. Um, and, and these kind of biases can actually harm people. Amazon created uh, an AI to screen uh, CVs for applicants for software developer positions. And they trained it on the CVs of their best software developers, um, who are all men. And what it learnt was good software developers are men. So just as snow does not make the animal photographed in it a wolf, someone's gender does not have any bearing on whether or not they're a good software developer. And, and data can shift over time as well. Um, there, there was an AI that was deployed in the United States that would detect uh, early onset sepsis. Um, and problems arose when, when COVID emerged because to the AI, COVID and sepsis kind of looked the same. And all of a sudden there was over alerting um, and it had to be switched off because it was providing a lot of alerts that aren't, that aren't useful. So there's so lots of, um, the, the other big challenge with it is that AIs are, to a large extent, they are black boxes. We kind of understand the theory of how they work. We know there's hidden layers, all this other stuff. They don't think like we do. Um, so, so when you're looking at patients, you kind of understand some of the underlying theory of what's happening with them. Uh, an AI that is looking for cancers in screaming mammograms, it only knows what's in the, in the image. It doesn't know anything else. So um, there are devices that will triage. Um, it, it'll identify cases that have been uploaded into the packs that might, might be suspicious for, um, for stroke. But it doesn't know anything about the patient's neurological symptoms or what their, their history is. Um, they don't think like we do, but that makes them very hard to, to verify. If, you know, um, you know, when you sort of seek a second opinion, you're just talking to another human who thinks the same way you do. And, and so my research, this is my PhD actually, is I looked at, um, at automation bias, which is the potential for machines to actually bias people. And um, this is actually more likely in, in cases where humans are uncertain. Um, but I, I did read one paper that said very nicely, is it turns out that stuff that's hard for people is also hard for machines. <laughs> So, so all of that was kind of theoretical 
these are theoretical um, limitations of machine learning that we know from the literature and from the way they train, you know, the, the reliance on data, so they're sensitive to it. So we wanted to have a look at, you know, we, we, had some, we, we know that there are some medical devices with, with AI in them. Um, and, and one of the other things with, with medical devices that's sort of very interesting for us as researchers as well is um, there's post-market surveillance. So, so we thought we'd um, go back to the FDA's databases and trawl through their adverse event reports, uh, looking at when, when it had gone wrong. And I'd sort of highlight in the title there, it's more than algorithms, that the risks that, that are sort of posed. And don't, don't focus too much on the sort of the numbers and, and all that in this. I, so I sort of just want to show this as a kind of an illustration of kind of like the use of technology in, in performing a task. Is there is a user who seeks to accomplish something? So it might be doing a risk assessment. It might be to, you know, screening or, you know, um, triaging a case. And technology is, is something that's going to be used to help accomplish that task. And, and there's going to be interactions and sort of outputs that are used by the person. So we did see um, events where the AI got it wrong. Um, so, so this was one, these, these are actually quotes that we, we observed, this, this was in the, the, these were in the event reports, um, where, so, so this is a, an AI that calculates um, fractional flow reserve derived from CT. And it, the, the values that were being reported would not indicate, were not consistent with the patient that had just um, had a heart attack. Um, and I just sort of just want to show this bit here is the, um, so remember I talked about the indicated caveats, is the manufacturer's response to it refers back to them. Is we, we tell users that, um, you know, this is just one of many data points you should consider um, and that, that it's up to sort of the clinician's judgment. We also saw a few cases with contraindicated use where someone was using an AI for a different purpose to what it was intended. So one thing I should say is with, with AI machine learning, it does what it was trained to do and nothing else. So it's really important. It's very narrow in the scope of its intelligence. So, so if it, if it, um, let's have a look at look at the um, the event. Because we served, we we saw a few like this. Um, I had a heart attack, but but you know this uh, this device told me my heart was fine. <laughs> so, so everybody already knows the punchline, which is that it's neither capable nor indicated to detect a heart attack. Um, and, and one might sort of also argue is that the, this is a consumer-facing app, is that someone who is concerned about their heart may not have at the forefront of their mind the differences between an arrhythmia and an infarction. Um, they may just think that this is a device that can tell me if there's something wrong with my heart. Importantly, um, that's evident from this, is that these kind of decision support systems can drive action and, and drive what 
what is done. So in this case, it's people's um, what their behaviours in terms of seeking healthcare. And the, the example at the top is that person reported delaying calling an ambulance because of the, the result that they got from the app. Um, the, the other ones were a bit sort of tentative. They sort of may have, may not have. Um, two definitely didn't delay seeking care. And, and I kind of envisage this as like, it's almost like two people having two different conversations where, where someone asks a question and they get an answer, but it's not really the answer to the question they asked. But um, so it's just sort of a bit of a communication problem between uh, human and machine. We did see problems in how people used AI devices. So this is sort of just, um, I was going to say user error, but um, okay, it's user error. But um, and these can harm people. Um, where a doctor accidentally moved the target area for a radiotherapy plan. And lion's share was actually in data input. So remember, um, AI, it's data-driven. It requires good data. Um, a lot of them, and, and sort of just to sort of put this into perspective, most of them concerned it was one model of mammography scanner. Um, and I understand it's a very prevalent one, so we would kind of expect to see any issues with that would be featured more prevalently than lesser used devices. Um, and this scanner, it has a C-arm, the switches, um, foot switches and things like that occasionally had a bit of a propensity, not propensity, but they, they would occasionally get stuck and there could be uncommanded movement of the C-arm um, and people could be struck by the gantry as it's moving. And this would usually result in, in a machine being taken out of service and no data captured. There were also a group of events where um, there was bad data that was captured. So there's artifacts in the image. Um, one, one of them described you know, the grid lines sort of used to align showing up in, in the scan. Um, there were other ones describing contrast that had been administered, not been visible. And, and one where a known breast lesion was hardly visible in, in the resulting output. Um, and if it's not going to be a good, good image that's captured for you know, a human to read, then an AI is also going to have trouble reading it as well. And as we sort of divide that diagram between looking at the blue one other is the use of the device, is that um, use of the device is kind of overrepresented in the harm that was observed in the events. It's actually Harm was um, four times more likely where we're involved in the use of a device. So I suppose to put it in perspective, it's, it's an interesting area and, and it's, it's actually a tough one because um, there, are, there, are look, there are clear benefits that, that can be derived from, from new technologies and, um, and from AI. Um, I've talked before about um, Luminetics Core, the, the device that's intended to screen for diabetic retinopathy in, in primary care. And so there, there's opportunities for, for AIs to, to actually provide new opportunities for screening previously unscreened populations, um, for, for early detection and, and intervention, and especially accessibility sort of, you know, with costs and 
things like that. I mean, we're sort of lucky in Australia to have a universal healthcare, but you know, in countries that are pay for use, like the United States. Um, and, and of course, we would hope that all of these, and, and it is critical that we evaluate um, all the AI sort of products that, that are involved with healthcare to make sure that they do ultimately improve patient outcomes. But there are, there are risks as well, um, which need to be balanced. So, so there are benefits that we sort of can't sort of ignore, but there are also very, very significant risks that we can't ignore either. Um, there is an expectation with a lot of cases, um, it, sorry, with a lot of medical devices that are on the market now, the assistive model, that the expectation is that the human will compensate for any mistakes the AI makes. This is actually a hard task for humans to do is, um, okay, so think about full self-driving, for example. If you're actively driving a car, that's a very different task to actually supervising someone who's driving a car. And then trying to dive across the you know, center console to take the wheel should something go wrong. Um, so same thing in, in healthcare, sort of supervising an AI making a decision is, it, it's, it's a more complicated task. And it's very difficult because the AI is a black box. So we saw with some of the imaging-based AIs that it can point to something, it can circle something and go, oh, because of this. But it, it's not going to tell you why it thinks that. Um, and, and as I was saying before, is AIs think differently to the way we do. So you know, these are all sort of kind of challenges with, with AI and healthcare. And, and I think that, and look, this is why we are kind of seeing that, that full self-driving, it's, uh, the, the other one I heard was someone who was saying that, that self-driving has been five years away for the last 20 years. And, and it's kind of balancing up these kind of challenges. And so what I want to leave you with is kind of four questions that you can ask about AI. Um, so this is actually, these questions are going to be in an upcoming article in um, the Internal Medicine Journal. But, um, and the, the, I mean, the first one is like, what does the AI do? And, and we are kind of thinking of an AI as doing something with the input that's given. So detecting cancers from screening mammograms. And a lot of what we see sort of reported and discussed in, um, especially in the media and it's been written and, and, and the comment is sort of stops here, but then we have to go and ask, we have to keep asking questions. We have to ask the next three questions as well, which is then how is that turned into a useful clinical tool that can be used in clinical practice? Um, and, and, and the ability to detect sort of indicators of disease can be used in different ways. So there was uh, profound AI which would circle suspicious cancers um, and, and sort of, you know, you know, have a look at these ones. But there are other ones that do sort of function more autonomously uh, where uh, one example is that there is an AI that will sort of, it'll detect stroke in, in CT scans as they're uploaded to the PAC system. It doesn't diagnose it, it doesn't help people diagnose it, but what it does is it flags it as a priority case. And, and the, the intended benefit of it is to get that in front of someone faster, you know, to reduce time from when the person is first scanned to, to, to intervention. And, and this kind of ties into the third question, which is about what does it contribute to healthcare? How does it help? 
um, I kind of think of this question as sort of asking, how does it, how does it deliver value? And finally, and, and this is really important, is can I rely on it? Can I trust it? Or, or do I have to hold its hand and double check it's working out? Um, so thank you. I will, I will pass over to Saba, who will focus this a bit more on to nursing. Our next speaker is a registered nurse. She's got with experience in surgical nursing, nurse education and patient safety. And she's doing her PhD at the Australian Institute of Health Innovation at Macquarie Uni. And it's amazing to have her here because her research is looking at the use of AI, looking at enabled decision support for nursing assessments to manage clinical risks in hospital patients. So please give a big warm welcome to Saba Akbar. Come on, Saba. Thanks, Sophie. Um, and that was a wonderful presentation, David. David actually set the stage for my talk. Um, I will be speaking more in terms of how AI helps us, helps nurses and midwives. But before I dive into AI and all the nitty-gritties of it, I just wanted to give a brief introduction of myself, so where I am coming from. Um, and if you are a young nurse or if you encounter young nurses in your role as a leader, um, this, I, I just wanted to say where I'm coming from because it's important to understand the, that some young nurses at times would have confusions around what they want to do in their careers. And this, like this is space of AI and informatics can be um, a good option. So I did my undergraduate in nursing from Pakistan, which is a developing country in South Asia. Um, I graduated in 2011, so th not that old. But, um, and then I worked as a surgical nurse, so in general wards, then in special care units, which is equivalent to high dependency units here. Um, and then I moved into a bit of education. And then the major shift that I had was when I started working as quality and patient safety nurse. Um, again, the same, same setting. So it's a developing country, the challenges are different, the demographics are different. Um, and in that role, that is when I realized the importance of technology, the importance of data, the importance of computers, really. Because every project that I was involved in had something to do with digital applications. So most of the solutions were coming out from digitizing things, but not just for the sake of making them electronic, but more from making intelligent systems to solve problems related to patient safety. And so that's when I got interested into it, um, and I started exploring my options. Unfortunately, at that time, Pakistan did not have any formal training in nursing informatics, so I um, went to the States, got a scholarship to do a master's in health informatics. And while doing that, I learned a lot of concepts around informatics. So informatics, health informatics, nursing informatics, it's, it's a huge space. Um, and AI is just part of it, but then we have electronic medical records, there are talks about decision support systems, and I'm going to talk more about decision support systems mainly because they're very much linked with AI. Um, but there's, there's so much happening in the space of informatics. There's, there's talks about how do we use data to make better decisions, all of that. Um, and so that happened, and then I moved here, started working with um, Australian Institute of Health Innovation, and digged into mobile apps, really. And I wanted to see how mobile apps are doing in terms of if they're, if they're using machine learning or AI. Are they safe? Are they not safe? Um, and that review actually got a lot of attention because we found that 
a lot of mobile apps that we can access on our um, app stores are not really safe because like David mentioned, there's so many things going wrong within those apps. And, uh, and those are mainly consumer-facing apps. So you can imagine the amount of um, damage it can cause. From there, um, I realized that I wanted to then combine my knowledge and skills from nursing and informatics. Um, and I became interested in looking at how can AI and machine learning and all these talks about automation, how can that help us? How can that improve and make the lives of nurses easier? And that's where my PhD comes in. So now I'm looking into effects of automation or effects of AI or nurses' decision making um, and ultimately patient safety. So this is where I am coming from. Um, and while doing all of this, so during my clinical practice, then during uh, my role as quality and patient safety nurse, and now as a PhD researcher, what I've realized is that we nurses and midwives, we are the group that collect the most data. From the moment we start our work with the patients, we're continuously either talking to patients, talking to other healthcare team members, we're just collecting data and documenting it. Right? We do a lot of documentation, right? Um, so that, that's, that's our thing. We are supposed to do so many documentation, whether it's paper form, whether it's um, electronic, and there is all kinds of data that we collect. There's objective data, there's subjective data. Um, and these are just some examples of the data that we collect. So we have, we start with our assessment. So when we meet patient, we ask about what they're here for. We have heaps of assessment forms that we need to complete. So we're doing initial assessment at the time of admission, then we're doing repeated continuous assessments um, until the patient is in our care. Um, then we have history. So we're asking patient about the past of what had happened. So it's the family history, it's the history of their medication, of their illness, of their comorbidities, all of that. So we're talking to patients about their present, and we're also asking them about their past. And then we also, when they're here, we're monitoring them. So we have systems in place to chart their vital signs, um, their pain assessment, all of that. So we're continuously monitoring them, and then we're taking notes. So there's nurse's notes or progress notes. So we're writing everything, um, everything that's happening with the patient, whether it's a procedure, whether it's an intervention. So lots and lots of data that we are collecting and documenting. <clears throat> so when we talk about AI, its history is around four decades or so 40 years in nursing, but the discussion on nursing-related or midwifery-related AI applications has only recently gained momentum. Um, we have recently come into limelight, and I did a quick search on PubMed, which is a large database of um, research, and you could see I searched for artificial intelligence, machine learning, or AI in nursing, and you could see that in, only in the last few years, um, there's a rise in the number of studies that are being done. So it's pretty recent, but we're kind of catching up, um, especially with the AI applications in other areas of healthcare. So we're catching up, we're going faster. It is recent, but pretty fast. Now going back to basic, we all know this, right? We are taught this. Um, this is the cyclical process that nurses follow. It's called nursing care process. Starts with assessment where we are looking at patient, gathering information, again, collecting data, collecting data about what is going on with patients, then making a diagnosis. So it could be um, just identifying nursing problem. For example, pain. 
and then planning what we want to achieve, right? So what are the outcomes that we want? What, where do we want to see our patient? So then we are planning and then we're implementing actions based on our plan, so our, on our care goals. And once those interventions are placed, then we are going back and looking at whether it's working. So we're evaluating. And then we're doing it all over again. So this is the process we follow. And while doing all of that, we're making unlimited amount of decisions. So whether it's conscious decision or it's going on in the back of our heads, but we're making decisions. Um, these are just few types of decisions that, are, that have um, appeared in literature. But if we link these decisions to our process that we follow, when we are assessing, we are essentially choosing when to assess and what to assess. Because timeliness is important, right? We, we don't want to be late in, in identifying certain risks in patients. So what are we assessing and when are we assessing is important decisions that we make. Then when we start assessing patient, when we start asking questions, we're continuously making decisions about should I ask more questions? Do I need more information? Or is it all I need? So again, decisions. Then there are decisions about classifying and analyzing all those, all those assessment-related information that we have gathered, looking at patients, looking at their um, symptoms, and making our own decisions about what is going on. Then there are decisions about choosing among interventions, because as nurses and midwives, we can do a lot for our patients. But in that moment, looking at our patient, and deciding which is the right intervention for my patient is a big decision. Then there are decisions about how to deliver those interventions and how to deliver and then receive the information um, in return to make our evaluation better. And again, when we are evaluating, we're just not looking at the data, the objective data, but we're also looking at our patient to interpret the cues to find out if what we have done has worked. So lots and lots of decisions. Now, these decisions may sound overwhelming, but there are systems in place that help us make those decisions. And they're called Clinical Decision Support System, or CDS for short. So Clinical Decision Support Systems, um, they're defined as knowledge-based systems that analyze data, so whatever data we give them, um, and they enhance healthcare providers' ability to make decisions in a clinical workflow. Now, decision support systems can come in various forms. It can be backed by machine learning or AI, or it could just be by itself. They, these systems help users or us make informed decisions because they combine evidence-based knowledge with patient characteristics and try and give out more personalized recommendations. Like I said, they can come in many forms, um, and their functions can vary. There are some decision support systems that are there to present data. For example, the wireless science monitoring chart. So if you look at it, you can see the trend of how the patient is doing. What it's really doing, when you look at the chart, you can just see the data, because its function is to present the data in a manner that it's more comprehensible. Then there are certain decision support systems that give you alerts. If the patient's blood pressure is higher than the usual range, it will give you an alert. Um, so that's their function. Then most, more complicated function could be implementing action. So it's not just only telling you what's wrong, it's also doing it. So for example, there are systems that are connected with patients' um, medication infusion pumps. And so for example, if it's an infu uh, insulin in infusion pump, 
when the system detects hyperglycemia, it'll administer the right dose of insulin in the moment. So that's an example of implementing action. So decision support systems can do a lot more things. Within our nursing care process, these are just some examples of simpler forms of uh, decision support systems that we use. So there are assessment forms. There is form for initial assessment, nutrition assessment, falls assessment, pressure injury. There are all kinds of decision support systems because they're telling us what to ask and when to ask. And they're also kind of risk, they're also screening patients for risks. So if the patient is high risk, low risk, so again, helping us make those decisions. There are um, structured care plans and pathways available now because we need to know what's next. So these decision support systems tell us what interventions should be taken. Then we have observation charts, again, presenting data, and symptom monitoring sheets. Help us look at what's going on, look at the trend to see if the patient is improving or deteriorating. Now these are, like I said, simpler examples of our day-to-day -day interaction with decision support systems. Now, um, we did a systematic review to look at whether AI supports the decision support systems that are in practice for nursing, especially around the process. So we looked into decision support systems that are mainly used by nurses, not by other healthcare providers, because we wanted to focus on nursing. And as part of this review, we'll, we try to link, at, link the decision support systems with our nursing care process. And this is what we found. So we found that, uh, so there were 28 studies that were included in this review each study looking at a unique decision support system. So 28 systems, and out of them, there's a lot more systems doing the assessment side of things and implementing side of things. By implementation, I meant not doing the action, but suggesting nurses what to do. So these systems are letting you know what to ask to assess patient. They're taking the data and then telling you what to do, so recommendations. And there's, there's really not um, in lines with evaluation. So these are where the systems stop. They tell you, this is what you should do. And then that's it. There's no going on to say, oh, how is your patient doing now? Or did you check back in 30 minutes? So there's not much happening around evaluation. These decision support systems that we looked at, um, they were performing several tasks. Triage was the top of it, um, and not all of the decision support systems were backed by AI completely. There were elements of machine learning in, in bits and pieces, so some things, some parts of the tasks were performed by AI, um, but not a lot. So that's another gap, right, and we'll talk about the gaps in a minute. So triage is the first kind of site where these systems exist. What ha what's happening in triage is patient comes to you, they tell you their symptoms, you assess them, and then there's a recommendation of where should the patient go. So not telling what to do with the patient, but just what, where should they go. So that's the number one application of these systems. Then there are certain systems that tell you the whole of plans, so kind of care plans for what should be happening in that particular condition. Um, there are a few systems for medication management, so helping you calculate doses, um, telling you what route should you take, all of that. 
there are a few systems that are very symptom specific. So system for fever management or system for hyperglycemia management. So very symptom or a condition focused. And then there are a few um, systems that are implemented in community for um, health promotion and maintenance purposes, especially when nurses are dealing with um, chronic conditions such as hypertension or where midwives are in the community dealing with um, pregnancies and newborn conditions. Now, like I said, there's not a lot of AI in all of these systems. What AI is helping here is mainly around analyzing information. So these systems will ask you to input patient's information, and it will give you a score, or it will give you the dose of medication. So it's, it's the calculator for you. Or it's telling you what to do. So it's gathering information, it's consolidating the system, and it's telling you what to do, the recommendations. But here's the thing. There's a, there's a huge gap around AI completely supporting nurses' work. And also learning, do we really need that? What, what as nurses and midwives do we need? Is AI going to help us? There's so much, so much discussion around, oh, AI can do this, AI can do that. But as nurses and midwives, there are questions around, what do we actually need? What is going to work? So my current research is around identifying whether some form of automation or AI can help with nursing assessments. And again, is it really going to help? So I've designed a simulated system. This system uses AI to help nurses assess patients. So it starts with identifying patient condition, um, looking at all the medical records, and recommending what assessments to do, but also filling out the forms for us, so kind of making our lives easier. This system is called SNAP, um, Smart Nursing Assessment Program. It's a prototype. It's, it's kind of, we're trying to um, study this proof of concept just to see if it's going to work. And the aim is not to evaluate nurses' or midwives' competencies. We're just trying to look at whether the system, that AI, would work and it will have an impact on nurses' decision-making um, and risk identification. We're inviting nurses to participate, and there are online um, patient scenarios, hypothetical patient scenarios that you can complete. And we are mainly focusing on whether AI can help us reduce missed assessments and can help us do more correct and complete assessment, and is it saving us any time? Um, this is the study link, if anyone is interested. I'm going to put up a slide at the end as well. Um, if you're interested to participate, please do that. Okay. So that was a background of how AI um, is existing within the nursing care process and how decision support systems help us. Now, within nursing, there are a few examples that I could um, extract out of. So these are all Australian examples. Some of them, well, most of them are nursing-led, so they are designed by nurses, um, so that's just good to know. This is a wound care app. What it does it is it collects picture of a patient's wound, so it could be a pressure ulcer, it could be, um, it could be any other chronic wound. It allows you to take picture, and then it uses artificial intelligence to analyze the, that, that image. And it looks at um, what type of cells are involved in that wound, what is the size, and all of that. And then it gives you the recommendation about what to do. 
what medications can be given, what, what really to do. And it is linked with patient's medical record because that is what we want. We need integration. The AI apps, when they exist on their own, when they exist in the silos, that's where more errors come out. And that's what um, David's study on FDA apps kind of tell you because if it's an independent app, there's more chance that problems may arise. So this one is linked with patient's medical records. It stores all the information, all the images, and then it can keep a track of um, the progress. So you could see if the wound is getting better. This is another example. It's called Pain Check. Um, it's mainly used in aged care, and it's for patients who cannot communicate with their caregivers. And so the app has, again, a feature of camera, so the caregiver can record a video of three seconds, and then the app will use AI and facial recognition features to tell you if the patient is in pain. Interesting, right? Um, this one is an example from inpatient hospital setting. So it's, uh, it's an AI-powered early warning system. And this, it was implemented within Sydney, and they have found that it is actually improving um, the outcomes. So there is reduced mortality and reduced length of stay. So it's kind of triggering alerting nurses when there is, um, there's a risk of patient deterioration. Then there's this, another one from community. So it's a fall detection technology, again, AI-powered. So what this one does, it's a device that um, the, the person in the community, the, the, the aged care, it, it could be used in aged care or in resident home, That's, it's either way it works. Um, so what it does is it detects any changes in, face, in, in the person's behavior. So whether they have a fall or looks like they're dizzy um, or they if they have been alone for a while, so there's no one around them. So this device can actually detect a few things and it will tell you if there's a fall. So if there's a fall, this device will alert caregivers within two seconds. Um, they're promising that this device is going to go over the detection part. So it's also going to help predict and prevent falls in future. Um, this is an interesting example because it's, it takes you out from nursing care to nursing education. Um, and I was just talking to somebody who, whose family member is involved in a similar application. And so this is an AI, AI virtual reality-based um, system that helps with training nurses to deal with difficult situations, so aggressive patients or confronting situations in a very controlled environment. So they have trained the application um, with simulated scenarios, and then the nurse, nursing students can actually wear those really fancy VR glasses and um, interact with patients as if they're doing it in real time. And it's really nice. They, they had the, and this one is led by a nurse. Um, so they, they had the, their exhibition in the Medinfo, so we had a really nice big conference a couple of months back here, um, and they, they presented the demo. It was really, really nice. So these are just some examples, um, which are good to know. But what we do, so going forward, now we know there's AI, there's, there's so much happening in this space, there are decision support systems, but what we do as nurses and midwives, where's our role here? So this has come out from um, Charlene Ronquillo, she's a, she's a researcher from Canada, and they did an international, they made an international think tank to talk about really artificial intelligence in nursing, and there was representation from Australia as well. Um, and I really like their 
this argument where they say, given the potential magnitude of the impact of AI tools, because we know that AI is doing so much and there, there are so many new applications coming up, there is almost an ethical imperative for nurses to have a minimum basic understandings of AI. So as nurses and midwives, it's kind of now our responsibility to know what is AI, and just not in terms of the definition, but also to know what AI tools are we using and how is that helping us. So this is the report from their um, international think tank, and this has some really nice priorities and recommendations, but the three key priorities that they have suggested for nurses and midwives moving forward um, are these. So, Starts with nursing must, nurses must understand the relationship between data they collect and AI technology that they use. So like we said, we collect a lot of data, but as nurses and midwives, it's time we start understanding, it's time we start becoming aware of what data are we collecting and how is that helping the tools that we're using. So if you're involved in using electronic medical records, for example, or any other decision support system, we need to now start learning how they are both related. And this also brings us to understanding that the data that we input has to be good quality. Because in all of these things, it's always garbage in, garbage out. If the data is poor quality, the decisions will be bad. Biases usually come from the quality of data. So the data that we document in our daily clinical practice has to be standardized, if possible, but good quality at least. Then there is um, the second priority which says nurses must be meaningfully involved in all stages of AI from development to implementation. As nurses and midwives, we are often the target users or target consumers of AI applications. We don't get chance to know what's happening behind. But this is what we want. This is what we want nursing leaders to now start doing to make more um, efforts to provide opportunities to nurses and midwives to get them involved in the development and implementation stages of AI applications. Um, they also recommend for nursing education side of things, like we have clinical placements, we can have industry placements, we can have interdisciplinary placements where nurses are exposed to these apps being designed. Um, just going in there and looking at what is the process like? How do they come up with the system? How are they designed the way they are? Um, and so we really need that collaboration between nurses and these, this technical industry. And finally, AI for good nursing. So um, there are a few groups within informatics space that are working in AI and making, the, making AI good for different parts of healthcare. And one of the group is AI for good nursing. They advocate for using AI or designing AI in a manner that they are useful for nurses, they're good for nursing, they're improving nursing practice, and not really hindering nursing tasks. So AI tools, if you're involved in designing AI tools, uh, it's important that we know that these tools have to be part of the clinical workflow. They don't have to necessarily increase nurses' work burden, but they have to help nursing practice. And that comes, brings me to my final thoughts. We know AI is here, it's going to stay here, and it's changing nursing and midwifery practice for good. It's, in, it's bringing more value to our practice, and it's time we um, accept it. We, there, are, there is immense progress that has happened so far. So we started with 
paper-based forms, right? There were days where, and still today, a lot of hospitals, not just in Australia, but globally, they're still doing paper-based forms, but we're slowly moving to computerized systems, but then also apps and devices and portable systems so that we can collect more data on patients' bedside. And now we also have sensors. So look at the progress or evolution that has happened. So we have sensors that can collect real-time data. So so much happening, but still a long way to go, especially for nursing and midway free space. And it's on us to now embrace it um, and get involved, participate in projects that include AI and technology. Um, I hope this never happens. So we really want humanity to be there. We, <laughs> we really don't want this. Um, but other than that, um, we value nursing practice. There is meaning in nursing decision making. We don't want nurses to disappear. Nurses are going to be there, um, but just alongside AI. That's it. Thank you. I'll, help. I'll love to connect. Um, and yeah, if you want to participate in my study, this is the link. This can only be done on computer or laptop, and there is incentive involved. Um, you can also meet with me during lunch break, and I've got like small cards with the link on it, so you can keep them for later participation. Give Sabra a round of applause. Come Thank and sit you. down, and David as well. Come sit down. We've got about um, just over 10 minutes for the Q&A, so I've, I'm going to try to get through as many questions as possible. Um, I'll just ask, first of all, can I just have a show of hands how many in the audience are already using some AI in their practice already? There's not that many. Not that many. Not many. Not that many. I'm, I'm do, we'll redo that. We'll redo that poll in a few years and see what happens. Maybe they are, but we're not aware of. Right. They might um, be, but they may not be aware yeah. of it. To Saba. Okay. So our first question um, is about safeguards. What safeguards do we have to ensure that AI devices um, that provide diagnosis, in particular, they aren't hacked or tampered with? So um, maybe I'll ask both of you to to address that. So, so, so any of them, any AI that is involved yet, yeah, diagnosis, um, treatment, management, prevention of disease is a medical device and that's going to be subjected to the regulations from the Therapeutic Goods Administration. Um, overall, I, I think we can sort of have a good amount of confidence in, in the regulators. They, they are sort of taking, taking this very seriously, um, especially things with like data privacy and because AI is, is sort of data vulnerable. So you, you, you're fairly confident that things are, that there are those safeguards in place? I, I think we're sort of, um, I, I sort of get the, this is sort of my impression, is that it's still sort of evolving and that um, regulation and evaluation, all that is kind of evolving with it. Um, and and there have been a few sort of, to say along the way, opportunities to plug holes that have been discovered. Um, but, but I think the, the, the regulators are sort of, they are taking it very seriously. They okay. are. And Saba, does that back up your um, understanding from one of Yeah, I, I think that that's one of the reasons we are hesitant to use AI devices because there's so many AI applications there and they go through. So because we are from research and academia, we see lots and lots being studied, but not everything comes into practice. Mm. And that's where, we, because we are hesitant, right? There's not a lot of, so if AI does something wrong, who do we blame? Mm. Who do we, what do we do, right? So 
yes, there is TGA that helps with that. There are um, leadership within the local health districts that decide what applications are used within their um, clinical settings. But there's still gaps in there. And this is a good question that follows that. Angie Adams is asking, um, how do you address concerns that junior nurses in particular are at risk of not developing their own good clinical judgment skills if AI does become the norm? You know? Yeah, no, that's always a risk. Yeah. I think now is the time that we accept that this is going to happen. So, like I said, we're not diminishing nursing clinical decision making. That's, that'll always be there. Um, and there are, even right now within nursing education, there's a lot more focus on um, nurses making their own decisions. But just looking at AI tools as the support systems, they're helping you make the decision, but they're not trying to make work for, do work for you. For you, right. Um, so there's this line about, like there's this difference between AI doing things for you and just relying on it totally, but we really need nurses to still be nurses and make those decisions. David, did you have anything to add there? Yeah, can I, can I sort of be really theoretical for a minute? Um, so I did kind of say before that, look, AI is just a fancy method of automation, and we, we actually know, yeah. we know a lot about automation from the, the past. Um, so I suppose this is a kind of frustrating thing when, when there is the tendency for people to describe all things AI as being new, um, especially in, in high, high reliability industries such as you know, aviation. Um, there, there's kind of a, a continuum with automation, and, and there does come a point where something becomes a machine task. So um, a bad, bad example is starter motors on cars. Original cars had to be crank started. At some point, you could crank start it or you had a starter motor. So that was automated. Now, now it's not possible to crank start task. It's a, it's a machine task. It's, we've, it's been handed over to, to the machine altogether. The, the bigger risk is that jobs and tasks become defined in terms of automation. Mm. And, and the risk with that then is that it sort of automates everything that can be automated with AI and you leave the rest to the human to sort out. And it's kind of a bad way of doing it because chances are stuff that's, that the AI can't do is going to be hard for a human as well. Right, and, and there is a definite, um, yeah, there is a different thing with skills of atrophy if, if people don't have the opportunity to sort of practice their expertise. Now, and Saba, you mentioned about the fact that some AI is just academic, but then some is in clinical practice. And, and Deb Ross is asking, do we have frontline healthcare workers not necessarily academics assisting with the development of AI so that, um, that because you know, changes occur rapidly in, in practice and often you know, um, if, it's just, if it's academics, no offense, looking at it, it can be sometimes clinical practice moves much faster than, what, than what's happening in the academic world. Yeah, um, that's, that's a very important question because we really want to see nursing and midwifery free representation in, in work like this. Um, so I know that companies like Microsoft they have a nurse leader, um, Dr. McCarthy, she's a nurse, and she is mainly the decision maker around what healthcare specific tools are going out. But also within like Australia, now hospitals have specific nursing roles to get involved in EMRs. Um, and, and also, so there's an Australian Institute of Digital Health, AIDH, mm -hmm. and we have a group within AIDH um, focusing on nursing and midwifery. And there are a lot of nurses and midwives in that group that work 
with techn technology and um, IT departments within hospitals. So yes, there are opportunities. There are nurses working um, in systems. Even in commercial industry, there's, there's so many nursing positions now available for those who are involved in clinical practice but want to come in be part of technology development. Because that was another question Holly was asking, what kind of jobs are there for nurses who are interested in both health, but also in information technology? So some of those things that you just yes. mentioned, anything else that you would want to mention? Um, so like I said, every most companies, most big data companies or most big software companies are now looking for nurses. Uh, in their job description, you would see they want opera registration. So they want your registration to be current. Um, and so we, they want someone who is currently practicing to come on board and help them with um, their development, product development. There are positions around marketing as well, so learning and understanding what AI is doing, what their system is doing, and then educating patients. So along those sides, those are the kind of role. There are roles within clinical settings um, that ask you to analyze data for them, look at the trends, help them design solutions, in-house solutions um, for their patients. So yeah, there's plenty opportunities now available. And Colette's got a, a question about Macquarie Uni, where you're both from. It says that Macquarie Uni is the first integrated healthcare uni campus, which has some unique opportunities for developments in healthcare, but you don't have a faculty of nursing at Macquarie. So how do you ensure that nurses and midwives are really mm -hmm. adequately yeah. consulted <laughs> and engaged? In <laughs> yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. We don't have a faculty of nursing. But, but we they have, have you. They but, have you, yes, though. But we have a good nursing workforce within Macquarie Hospital, University Hospital, and we collaborate with them on a lot of projects. So uh, they are they are very much willing and ready to be part of the things that we do. And we've recently done project with them where so because I'm looking at decision support systems, so I went in there to help the team um, look at their decision support systems and trying to see what's happening there and make changes there. So yeah, we work with the nursing clinical work, workforce within the hospital. Um, and then we have collaborations with other nursing schools and nursing universities within Sydney and um, other states of Australia and even internationally. So we do a lot of collaborative projects with them. And oh, that's good to hear. Um, Araceli's asking, um, is AI the answer to staff shortages? Do you think it could fill a gap? <laughs> <laughs> we wish. <laughs> uh, so see, AI cannot be a whole nurse. Like, you can't have an AI rostered for duty, right? <laughs> you just can't. That's not going to work. So we still need nurses. AI, though, AI can help you make better rosters. AI can help you with scheduling. There are systems available. <laughs> well, I think that's, that would definitely be something that a lot of people would be interested in. So look, we're almost out of time. We're almost out of time for this. Um, but um, uh, just one last question, which is, goes back to the, the, the development of, of um, you know, nurses' clinical th thinking and clinical judgment. How do we promote the use of AI while still making sure that, you know, people are properly trained and have good clinical judgment as they come through their nursing, their nursing training? I think it's going to start from the, the, the degree programs. It's not, so when we wait for the nurses to become nurses and go on floor and then learn, it's kind of 
They can do it, but it's better if you start it earlier. So, so when they're training uh, to be when they're a nurse. trained, yeah. Right. So when they're in their undergraduate program and they're getting their degree, it's important that they're exposed to systems and designing and all of that stuff, so AI and machine learning, so that when they are on floor, they're better equipped with that skill and that, that knowledge to be able to see what's happening um, on floor. So it has to start from the beginning. Okay, look, we're out, we're out of time. We've had a lot more questions. So um, Saba and David will be around, hopefully, for the next, in the lunch break, hopefully, if you do have any more questions and if you want to sign up for her study as well. But please give them a big round of applause. Thank you so much. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise that this land was never ceded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.